I encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word there available to you, to join me in the little book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the end of the first chapter, beginning at verse 22, and we'll read down through chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22, reading down through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's Word. Father, now by your Spirit, attend the preaching of your Word. According to your promise, help us see and hear this rightly. This we pray in Christ's name. Now before I plunge into the text with you this morning, I wanted to mention some of you likely had heard in this past week a call had gone out for ministers in evangelical churches here in the United States to preach on the matter of a Christian view of sexuality or a biblical understanding of sexuality. Now this came about because a week or two ago, I guess about two weeks now, in Canada a bill was passed, Bill C-4. The bill is called the Anti-Conversion bill. The design behind it is that anybody who seeks to help a person change their mind about being transsexual, homosexual, or any of the other gender malfunctions we would say of our time, the gender directions, is actually subject to legal ramification. And the bill is written so broadly that a pastor preaching simply what the text of Scripture says anywhere in Canada could be arrested, prosecuted, if I understand correctly, serve as much as five years imprisonment for simply preaching a biblical view of human sexuality. Now, I declined to preach to that because it was just a few months ago I did that very thing. It is not out of any cowardice on the matter. In summary, let me just say this as bluntly, plainly, and simply as I can. The Scripture recognizes sexual expression, righteous sexual expression, in one way. A man and a woman, in case you need clarification, 
a biological man and a biological woman. In the covenant of marriage are granted the gift of sexual intimacy. Any other sexual expression is outside the will of God and is ultimately a denial of our very natures and is antithetical to human flourishing. It's a disaster, and we are watching the disaster take place. All I would say beyond that, my friends, is this. Such sinful behavior always comes with consequences and ramifications, including the fact that people will discover that what they thought they wanted is not what they wanted, and what they thought was good for them is not good, and it will lead to so much misery and horror that the church should be prepared in coming years to minister to the fallout from this disastrous and mistaken understanding of humanity. So that was free, a little extra before the sermon. Got to be careful, it'd be easy to track off into that and preach. Further, whether today or next Sunday, I'm not exactly sure. At one time I knew, somehow we ended up with two Sundays for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Today and next Sunday. And just so you're clear, my friends, we believe in the Lord's care for the unborn. And that it is horrific beyond words to slay the unborn. Have you, have you at some point been involved with this yourself? I offer this gracious reality. The gospel is bigger than any of ourselves. And there is forgiveness and grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to the sermon. In the book of Acts, Luke relates a story of the gospel coming to Samaria. Philip, one of the original seven whom we understood would understand to be deacons, under persecution in Jerusalem, scatters with other believers and began preaching in Samaria. And many believed, including one they'd referred to as the great power, Simon, known traditionally now as Simon Magus. Peter arrives representing the apostles and prays over these new believers and the gift of the Holy Spirit is bestowed on them. Now, many times people say, well, now that's evidence that we are always to lay hands on people and pray that the gift of the Spirit may be imparted to them. Problem is, you have no warrant for that. That happens on very three very specific occasions. It happened here. It happens again at Ephesus as the gospel is going among the Gentiles, those are the two primary ones. Other times, the Spirit of God is simply poured out. Whenever the gospel first goes among Gentiles and Peter is called uh, to the centurion's house, you remember that? And Cornelius, as the preaching of the word is done, the Spirit of God falls on them and they began speaking in other tongues and they baptized them. 
This is the early days of the work of the Spirit of God. And so they laid hands on these believers and they received the gift of the Spirit. And Simon, seeing this, wants to be able to do this. And so he offers or questions how much will it cost so I can do this too? It sounds to me awfully akin to those who within our own time mingle the ministry of the Spirit of God with money and prosperity. Here is Simon Peter's response. Acts chapter 8, verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Wow. Simon's answer, pray for me, to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, my friends, it is possible to claim to be Christ's and not be his. It's possible to claim this reality and not own this reality. In essence, what Simon Peter is saying to Simon is, you're a phony. You think this is something that can be bought, something that can be manipulated? You're a phony. You're a stranger to the regenerating power of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word of God. Some believers, I think, find very little success in Christian living because they, they won't give themselves to the Word of God for that transformation. They make a mistake, I think, overall of thinking the transformation happens initially in the new birth, but the ongoing transformation is some other methodology we're either disinterested or frustrated about personal change. It appears in the case of Simon, he was not that interested in personal change. He was interested in making a buck. He was interested in popularity. He was interested in having authority. He wanted to be somebody. If you looked earlier in the text where it says this man is a power, could it be that he is the great power? His repentance and faith should have taken out of him any notion of being somebody great and important, but it didn't. It's a mark possibly, and according to Simon Peter, certainly, of no new birth. What Peter writes about here is he writes to these believers scattered in what we would call today modern-day Turkey, he is saying to them, this transformation of the new birth begins and continues by the Word of God. Consider first, transformed hearts, our love is changed. Verse 22, 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then he gives a reason, since you have been born again. The opening of verse 23. From whence comes this purity of soul, this purity of heart? It's the direct result of regeneration. Now, we talk about the aspects, the facets of salvation, right? We talk about election, that God the Father in in eternity chose to save a people. We speak about redemption. Christ dies on behalf of his people. We speak of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who effectually calls us and grants us the gift of faith. And we believe that through faith, we are then justified in the sight of God, not by our doing, but purely and solely by what Christ has done. And so if you focus essentially on what happens in the believer and to the believer, there is one side of it that's saying, yes, we are justified by grace through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. So no one may boast. But we also believe in the new birth. The regenerating work of the Spirit of God. And what Ezekiel prophesies. I take out your heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. And it creates a purity. Now our purity is not absolute as God's purity is. However, the purity is real. And the purity is connected not just to pure hearts, it's not just pure hearts, it's obedient hearts. Obedience is a direct result of the new birth. You hear the gospel, the Spirit of God works in your life, and you respond, that's obedient. The Lord says, repent and believe. When you became a Christian, you repented, you believed. How does that happen? The regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Obedience is never optional. Paul will say in Romans 1, 5, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That's another way of speaking about living the Christian life, entrance and living, the obedience of faith. It is obeying, believing to be saved. It is also the ongoing living of the life. And it creates loving hearts. Love for the family. Sincere, brotherly love. And loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Sincere love here means reality. Further, to say to do it with uh, earnestness is to love deeply. In fact, it's an intensity. The word that's used there for that kind of love is the same word that's used to describe the agony of Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's nothing casual about it. Oh, that we could get this into people's minds and hearts. In 1 John, we're told that to love is a mark of spiritual reality. My friend, if you don't love the brothers and sisters in the church, 
you are a stranger to the new birth. I'm not saying it can at times be a struggle. Some of us are less than lovable. (laughs) I was glad I heard a chuckle and not an amen. Uh, Our love for one another is grounded in what God has done. Calvin put it this way. We cannot be Christians without regeneration, for the gospel is not preached only in order to be heard by us, but that it may radically reform our hearts as a seed of immortal life. Edmund Clowney put it this way, Peter requires love for fellow Christians as the greater mark of true holiness. He's not satisfied, I love this, he's not satisfied with tolerance or acceptance, no. far less with formalized distance. Paul uses the word earnestly, which means stretched or strained. <laughs> I pondered that a little bit this week. How many times have I strained myself to love you people? And I, I'm thinking about me, not about you. I'm not thinking about whether you're lovable or not. I'm thinking about my own life. How much effort do I actually put into loving brothers and sisters? Now, friend, I'll say this straightforwardly as I know how. That love cannot be done in isolation. That love cannot be done on your terms. It is costly. It gets in the way. There are times it's extraordinarily inconvenient. Are you not delighted that the Lord Jesus didn't view going to the cross as so inconvenient that he wouldn't do it? You and I have been brought to a new birth. It changes our hearts. It changes our love. It creates in us a reality that we care about brothers and sisters. See, it makes me nervous. And I I know, folks, there's always, please understand, sometimes we have valid, legitimate reasons for these kinds of things. But you see, Whenever you don't have a valid, legitimate reason for running away from this place as fast as you can every service, I wonder about your love. Now, I know, for some of you, it's hard. Some of you are afraid you're going to have to talk to somebody. Just absolutely freaks you out. Okay. So I guess there's an exception if you're afraid of talking to people. You don't have to actually show any love. Hmm. That doesn't seem right. Well, I might have to talk to somebody that I'm not. They, they're a little bothersome. They're kind of annoying. They root for the wrong team. Their kids aren't as well behaved as they ought to be. And I, I can't believe he talks to his wife that way. Can't believe she talks. Folks, do you understand? We are supposed to be demonstrating to the world outside that this regenerating work actually changes our attitude towards one another. And that people who seem the most unlikely candidates to ever be in the same place and care about each other suddenly are together and care about one another. Ooh. Yeah, see, we don't want to talk about this because this really gets right up in our wheelhouse. It's It's annoying. Come on, preacher, can't I just believe in Jesus and run away from you people? 
Afraid not. How can I claim to love God whom I have never seen and not love my brother whom I have seen? John says that is a contradiction that cannot be reconciled. The new birth transforms our hearts. This is transformation, regeneration through the word. Second thing I'd have you consider. This transformation is internal and our very nature is changed. Verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You know, we may demonstrate love by our actions, but love cannot be transmitted that way. It requires an inward change. It requires the new birth. It requires that we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins, that faith coming through hearing, hearing through the Word of God, there's an inward change, a transformation. It happens by the imperishable, powerful Word of God, the Word that cannot die. It is living. It is powerful. Robert Layton said, the preacher of the word, be he ever so powerful, can cast this seed only into the ear. His hand reaches no farther, and the hearer by his attention may convey it into his head. But it is the supreme father and teacher above who carries it into the heart, the only soil when it proves lively and fruitful. Folks, this word, now I know you say, well, preacher, are you talking about the new birth or are you talking about the word of God? Yes. Those things go together. And see, this is where we get ourselves in trouble. This is where the admonition in the wedding ceremony ought to be the admonition here. What God hath joined together, let not man separate. The word and the spirit always operate together always now you see we got folks that want to talk about all the work of the spirit always about the spirit what's the spirit doing want to feel the spirit want to know the spirit want to be in touch with the spirit be filled with the spirit yada yada, yada. just on and on and on and i, I kind of well yeah amen so how's that happen well you you got to do this and this and that no 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 the word the word and the spirit go together this is there was a big controversy in the first great awakening. Can an unconverted preacher, can somebody be saved under an unconverted minister of the gospel? There, were, there was an argument about it. And the brothers finally came out and said, you know what, it's a sad thing, a tragic thing for a man preaching the word of God to be unregenerate himself. But the reality is the power is not in the preacher, the power is in the word. An unregenerate preacher can preach the truth and people be safe because the Spirit attends the Word. Yeah, that's a little sobering, isn't it? I'll say it is for me, the thought that I could stand up here and preach these things and be a stranger to them myself. That's scary. These things go together. We ought not to separate them. It is this imperishable Word. 
that comes in power. Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's not merely imperishable. It is abiding. It remains forever. It is an enduring word. The word is like our God powerful and enduring. The quote here from Isaiah opens in that 40th chapter or just ahead of it, these words. A voice says, cry, and what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. We are a vapor. We are but a moment. But folks, we have been changed. Why am I emphasizing this reality? This eternal, powerful, imperishable word attended by the third person of the Trinity, activating us and changing us and regenerating us, actually creates such a transformation that a process called sanctification begins where you and I in this life are made more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter how well that goes, it's not done until post-mortem at the resurrection when the work of sanctification transforms into the work of glorification and we are so changed that we will never want to sin again. I get excited about that, folks. I have no comprehension of what it means not to have some desire to sin. Thoughtlessness, carelessness, selfishness, stubbornness. <laughs> you go down the list, boom, 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 right? That is the work that God is doing in you, son or daughter of the living God. He is inwardly changing you. And it is mystery. Spurgeon preaching about this. Greater still is the mystery of the new birth, that we're born again, we know. But how? We cannot tell. How the Spirit of God opens upon the mind. How that He renews the faculties and imparts fresh desires by which those faculties should be guided. How is it that He enlightens the understanding, subdues the will, purifies the intellect, reverses the desire, lifts up the hope, puts the fear in its right channel? We cannot tell. We must leave this among the secret things which belong unto God. The Holy Spirit works, but the manner of His operation is not to be comprehended. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound, but can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. O my hearers, have you felt this mystery? Explain it you cannot, nor can I, nor ought we attempt an explanation, for where God is silent, it is perhaps profanity and certainly impertinent for us to speak. There is something glorious and mysterious in how God does that in us. Third consideration. We not only have transformed hearts, our love has changed, not only an internal transformation, that enduring change that changes our nature, we have transformed appetites. Our desires are changed. Chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit hypocrisy and envy slander 
old appetites removed. Malice here, or deceit, excuse me, malice first is ill will, the desire to inflict pain, deceit, all falsehood, hypocrisy, pretending, envy, desiring something belonging to another, and slander, evil speaking, all of that is to be put away. Why do we put it away? Because we have a new nature. We're changed. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Old things put away, new appetites encouraged. What's the new appetite? It is an appetite, what does he call it, for pure spiritual milk. Now, in this case, sometimes people say, well, no, wait a minute. There's other places where it says, you people are stuck on milk and you ought to be on meat. What's the matter with you? And here Peter's saying that milk is good. Context, folks, context, okay? In those places, the other places, the argument is, you're behaving as an infant. You ought to be ready for deeper things in the Word of God. The argument here is not that comparison. It's simply saying you ought to hunger for what's going to nourish you. And the nourishment is described allegorically or metaphorically as pure spiritual milk. And I think it is beyond the idea of, of the Word of God alone, although the Word of God is part of it. I think the desire here is for a change in one's thinking, a change that is wrought throughout you by all the realities that come to you in this salvation. This pure spiritual milk is the Word of God, but it's understanding that Word. It is applying that Word. It's the fellowship of the saints. It's all the things. The word here for uh, spiritual actually has in it the idea of a logic about it. There's a change in one's thinking, and it encourages new appetites that you may, by it you may grow up into salvation. By the word, hey, the word there, grow up, is passive. You're grown by the Lord. Now, this is always an intriguing thing, isn't it? I remember being a kid. It's been a long time ago, but I do remember it. And I remember wanting to grow. I was fairly average. Average height, everything kind of average. Boy, I wanted to be taller. You know what? There's not a thing in the world you can do. And I wanted, I wanted to be more muscular, and I worked at it, but there's some things you just can't quite do, depending on the stage of life you're in. Growth happens. Let me explain this to you this way spiritually. You cannot make yourself grow. What you can do is take on the things and imbibe the things and embrace the things that lead to growth. God is responsible for the growing. You're responsible, if you will, for the nourishment. You need spiritual food to grow. Some of you don't grow because you don't bother to get spiritual food. You don't have a regular diet that moves and changes you. 
That word is not impacting you the way it should impact you. I love how he ends, if so be you've tasted that the Lord is good. You see, there's an experiential element to Christianity. I never want to diminish that. Some folks live entirely and wholly for the experience, and that's disastrous. But let me tell you, my friends, there is a rich experience to being Christian. The English reformer known as Little Bilney, 1495 was when he was born. He studied law. He was outwardly rigorous in his efforts in religion, but there was no life inside of him. Then he happened to receive, now this, here's a peculiar route. Are you ready? He happened to receive a Latin translation of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Now that's a long way around, folks. Up to that point, if you're serious about religion, you studied the Latin Vulgate, which was the Latin version, Roman Catholic Church, of the Scriptures. And there were some problems with the translation. Erasmus actually reconstructs through ancient manuscripts a big chunk of the New Testament in Greek. But not everybody could read Greek. And so here's a fellow, Bilney. Somebody goes to the trouble of translating this Greek New Testament into Latin, and Bilney could read Latin. Here's what he said happened. I happened upon this sentence of St. Paul. And then parenthetically, oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy 1, there was the verse. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and the principal. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward looking, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the Scripture began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. My friend, we're told in the Psalms, O taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This new birth, coupling it with the powerful word of God, is the reality of spiritual maturity and changes. The Spirit of God takes those things and works in us. You know, we encourage people, you ought to read the Bible. Amen, you ought to read the Bible. Or listen to the Bible. That's an option available to most folks. But you understand, it's not just so you can check off on your list that day in the McShane reading calendar or the ESV reading calendar or whichever one you have. Did it today. Yep, did it today. Whoops, missed yesterday. Double today, got them both. Extra spiritual. Eight chapters instead of four. I'm on this thing. Right? It isn't just so you can check off the list. It is that that word, under the direction and power of the Spirit, 
is doing work in you. And that may be a slow work. It may not even be a work you necessarily recognize in that moment, but it's happening. It's why in a worship service like we do here, we put such an emphasis on the Word of God. We want you to hear the Word. We want you to say the Word. We want you to sing the Word. When we pray, we want our prayers to reflect the Word. And when the Word is preached, we want it to shed light on that Word. Because, my friend, God takes His imperishable, ever-enduring Word And by the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, first opens your blinded eyes to your sin and your desperate need of Jesus so you'll believe. And then he continues to do that same kind of work in you, in the new nature, by the power of the Spirit and the Word of our God. One brother tells of an elderly Japanese gentleman coming forward at the end of a service in the mining town of Shimei, Japan. And his eyes were moist with tears as he said, I never realized I could personally know the great God, but I know him now in Jesus. My friend, the new birth is absolutely essential, but you don't birth yourself any more than you chose to be born to begin with. God must birth you. But oh my friend, if you cry out to him, know that he is at work. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, it is because God has done the work in you. How can I know if I'm born again? Because I believe, I repent, I trust Kind of the same answer, how do I know if I'm elect? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you're his. See, we want to have formulas, and we want little tricks so we can look back. Well, I'm going to look back and see if I can decipher what happened. And I'm going to look back into eternity. I'm going to figure out some way to logic out this whole, no, 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 my friend, here's this really simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. And Christian and your discouragement in the Christian life, I simply ask you, do you pray for God to grow you? And do you take in the things that can be used as the nourishment of your very soul? May the Lord grant that for us. Let's pray. My Father,